Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Sean Burke. Sean played 820 NHL games over an 18-year pro career and represented Canada at two different Olympic Games. It's worth noting that Sean also liked to chuck the knuckles and is fifth all-time in penalty minutes by an NHL goalie. Immediately after his retirement in 2007, Sean transitioned directly into team management roles, which have included everything from scouting to goalie coaching to serving as general manager for Team Canada at the Spengler Cup. Today, Sean is known as the Goalie Whisperer, and in fact, just earned a Stanley Cup ring as the director of goaltending for the Vegas Golden Knights. And if we didn't have enough to talk about with Sean's playing and coaching career, he also owns the rights to a book called Ballad of the Whiskey Robber, a true story of bank heist, ice hockey, Transylvanian spelt smuggling, moonlighting detectives, and broken hearts. A book that may or may not turn into a movie that may or may not star Johnny Depp in the lead role. Let's jump right into all of this. Welcome, Sean, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm in actually in northern Michigan, Traverse City. My wife is from this area, so we have a summer place. And uh, with the long season, I'll get about two weeks up here this year. Oh, that's good. It's nice to have a break and refresh. Yeah, and you know what? I joke about it, but it's also nice to have a short summer because that usually means in this business that you've uh, had a successful hockey season. So that's uh, that's something I'll take as often as I can. Well, and that you have. Congratulations on your Stanley Cup victory with Vegas. Is the party still going on? No, the party ended. Um, although we don't, uh, we we haven't had our Cup Day yet. That's going to happen for us uh, in early September. But um, there's been a lot of uh, excitement, especially the first week after the season was over with the parade and different things like that. So it's uh, it's been a great experience. But uh, I'm I'm sort of settling now into a little bit of more relaxing time and until we have our party coming in September. Excellent. Well, I have to ask you, Las Vegas is a place for hockey and Las Vegas as a place to live and work. Your comments. Yeah, it's really become a hockey market uh, quickly, almost overnight. And, and I think the league probably had a little bit of trepidation being the first pro sports team to go in there, but uh, I, I can't imagine that um, there's been anything but uh, elation over the success they've had. And uh, you know now you're seeing that Vegas is becoming more of a sports town. Uh, they've, got a, they've got a football team. They're looking at getting a baseball team. But I think the beauty for hockey is that it was the first professional team there. It's been a very successful franchise. And if people haven't been to a game there, it's a, it's a great experience and it's quickly become a hockey town. That's amazing. Well, the success is incredible. Let's go back, please, all the way. Get the Sean Burke story. Where were you born? And describe your upbringing. Well, I was born in Windsor, but I spent very little time there. My dad at the time was working at the Windsor Raceway. And um, we, we moved up to Toronto shortly after. So I grew up uh, in Toronto. I grew up at Dufferin and Bloor on Gladstone Avenue. And, um, you know, I had, a, I had an interesting upbringing. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a kid that, um, you know, grew up with your typical uh, hockey background. My dad had never, had never played. But, of course, being in Toronto as a kid, everybody plays street hockey. Everybody follows the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and I was I was a typical kid uh, in that way, but you know, in my family we didn't have a car. All the minor hockey I ever played, I took on public transit. So I either took a streetcar, a bus, or a subway to the games, and I did that right up until I was playing junior hockey for the Toronto Marlies when I uh, I got drafted eventually, and 
you know, bought myself a car, Chevy Cavalier hatchback. I'll never forget it. And uh, then I didn't have to take the bus anymore to the games. So uh, that was really my uh, hockey upbringing. And looking back, there was a lot of advantages to that, to be honest, because I think I, I respected and appreciated the effort that was being put in by my father, especially because he would come to every game with me. And uh, and I think I learned in a hurry that there's sacrifices that were being made for me to play to play hockey at that level, and I and I never forgot that and always appreciated it. And uh, I think it I think it toughened me up from a young age. Well, past guest on this podcast, Glenn Metropolit, had a similar story. He took the TTC to all his minor hockey, but I have to say, Glenn was a player. Sean, you were a goalie with all that equipment. How did you become a goalie? And you must have said when you're slugging it on the DTC, why didn't I just stick with regular equipment? Yeah, that bag during rush hour created a lot of issues on the, especially on the buses when you're trying to get on and off those buses with a, with a big goalie bag. But my family at the time, uh, when I was about eight, uh, they were running a little takeout restaurant right beside the, the Dufferin subway station at Dufferin and Bloor. And we lived in the basement. Uh, and so, you know, we weren't in an area where there was a lot of parkland or anything, but there was a schoolyard. Bloor Collegiate was right across the street. And uh, my dad would take me over there to the schoolyard. There was, a, you know, tennis court. And uh, he'd throw the gloves on me, goalie gloves, and he'd shoot pucks at me. And that's how I started playing goal. I really uh, never, I don't think, came to it any other way other than he, he saw that I had a little bit of potential and... Um, put me in the net and uh, worked with me when I was young. And then I started playing on minor hockey teams from that age on. But that's how I started playing goal. That's amazing that your dad recognized that potential. Sean, you attended St. Michael's College High School, played junior B hockey for the St. Michael's Buzzers, then taken in the third round of the OHL draft by the Toronto Marlboros, where you played the next two seasons. Then up to the big time, drafted by the New Jersey Devils, second round of the 1985 NHL entry draft. What was the buzz leading up to draft day? And what do you remember about being drafted into the NHL? The first thing I remember is I I was, you know, courted a little bit by a couple other teams. New Jersey was not a team that I had really ever even spoken to. And um, I know the New York Rangers had interest. They had a pick in the first round. I think they had the sixth overall pick. And I thought that's where I was going to go. And as the first round went by and I didn't get drafted, he started to get a little bit anxious. You, you don't know at that point what's going to happen. But uh, when I heard my name called early in the second round, uh, you know, Jersey, like I said, wasn't a team that I had expected to be drafted by. But of course, now you know you're, you know, you're drafted by an NHL team. There's an incredible amount of excitement, relief, all kinds of different emotions. But more than anything, you start to think that uh, now you're you're sort of on your way. This is what you've worked for, and all the team is showing interest, and uh, and it just gives you a lot of motivation as a young as a young player to start to work towards becoming an NHL player. And Sean, that draft was an in-person draft, and where was it? It was in Toronto. It was in Toronto, my hometown, and I had been you know drafted in junior by the Toronto Marbles, so all, all my minor hockey right up until that point was played in Toronto, which. You know, as we all know, is uh, is is a mecca for hockey and uh, a lot of attention, and you and you get a lot of uh, there's a lot of scouts and junior watching. So it really, um, there was really a lot of advantages, I think, for me to being to to play in Toronto. I, I think that I got scouted a lot he- more heavy than than a lot of other guys playing in the league at the time. Well, you're certainly more used to the attention. Now, even before your NHL career started, you were national attention for your international play 
leading the Canadian national team to a silver medal at the 1986 World Juniors and a fourth-place finish at the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. Sean, these were two very different tournaments. Both must have been super exciting for you. Yeah, it's all a a blur now almost because thinking back, I I didn't really probably even appreciate at the time what what an honor that was. I mean, obviously representing your country is um is something that now as the years go by I feel uh, I've had so many opportunities to do that uh, I always appreciate it but you know you're young at that point and world junior it had it had you know obviously a lot of attention but not like we see today the world junior has become an incredibly big tournament around the world especially in Canada at Christmas time and so yeah I, I was very very again fortunate that I was that type of player that was considered for those teams. The Olympics in 1988, it was something as a kid you dream about playing in the Olympics. And I was able to fill that fulfill that dream. So there was just a lot of great experiences that I got to have as a young player. And, and then playing for the national team and going over and playing in places like Russia as a young player were, were such amazing experiences. Well, you transitioned directly from your appearance at the 1988 Olympics to kicking off your NHL career with the New Jersey Devils. Sean, do you remember your first NHL game? Oh, yeah, I do. I was sitting on the bench. We were playing against Washington, and, uh, you know, the coach put me in uh, midway through the game. So, you know, it wasn't a game I started. It wasn't a game I was expecting to play, and all of a sudden there you are, you're standing out on the ice in an NHL game. And then, of course, my first NHL start was another experience where then, it was in the Boston Garden, and um, now you know you're going to play. You're going to start the game. I, I don't remember all the emotions that went with it, but I know we won seven six in overtime, and I didn't play very well. <laughs> but but I got a win under my belt, and uh, and my NHL career was off and running. But it, it didn't start with. I'd love to say it started with a you know 38 save shutout in Madison Square Garden or the Montreal Forum. That wasn't the case. Well, I would say, though, that it did start relatively strong. You started 11 games for the Devils in that 87-88 season, including an overtime victory against the Chicago Blackhawks on the final night of the season that qualified the Devils for their first Stanley Cup playoff series. With you, Sean, as the backstop, the Devils then went on a crazy run, finishing one game away from the Stanley Cup Finals after your season ended with a Game 7 Wales Conference Finals loss to the Boston Bruins. Your play was amazing. You were dubbed a rookie sensation, and even the Hockey Digest wrote, quote, Sean Burke is now the franchise for the Devils, and to whatever heights he rises, the Devils will rise with him, unquote. No pressure, eh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. You look back, and um, it, it was such a, uh, a whirlwind of a start that I never really spent a lot of time thinking about it. You just played. We kept winning. We we got into the playoffs. We won the first round. We won the second round. All of a sudden, we're playing for a chance to go to the Stanley Cup. And all of that was great. But what also came with that was probably not realizing at the time that this isn't the way it's always going to be. As a young player, it, 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 there was there was a level of maturity that I hadn't reached yet. And I think that that was great in some ways because it didn't feel like a lot of pressure. But then all of a sudden, realizing now that this is the expectation that you have and and other people have for you, uh, it came crashing down for a while. It wasn't the same after that. And, you know, I think that that's, that's the maturation process of every young athlete. If you have a lot of success early, there's a level that you have to get to to be able to handle that. And, uh, 
I thought I handled it well at times, and then there's other times that I needed to grow up. And uh, and and the stark reality was I didn't play very well after that for a long time. It took me a while to to get my game back. You had a lot more highs, and as you say, there's an up and down to every season and to the maturation process. But even in the next season, you were still considered a rookie for that '89 season. You were named to the All Star game. How cool was that experience? Well, the experience itself was really cool because the game was in Edmonton and that was the coming back from Wayne Gretzky. He had been traded the summer before and uh, the the game itself being in Edmonton, he was reunited with Yari Curry. They were on the other team, unfortunately. So the first shift they scored, that was how my all-star game started with Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry combining for a goal. The place went crazy, and I, all I remember thinking to myself was, I got to play half of this game because in those days, they didn't have three goalies play. They only had two. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a long night. Grant Fuhr was in the other end, I remember. It, it actually worked out okay. The game was 3-3 when I left the game halfway through, which for an all-star game is quite a success to only give up three goals in half the game. So the process or, or the experience itself was pretty good. That's great. After the following season, a bit of a twist in the road for you. You sat out the 91-92 season requesting a trade and instead joined coach Dade King playing for our national team once more at the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville, France. Two Olympic experiences, Calgary, Albertville. Where do you keep your Olympic silver medal? I have to ask my wife that one, actually. I don't think they're anyway out displayed right now. I think the medals are somewhere. We've moved around a little bit in the last couple of years, so... They're well taken care of, but I couldn't exactly tell you right now where they are. They're in a box somewhere in the attic, I think. <laughs> How different was Albertville than Calgary? I think going back and playing in the 92 Olympics for me uh, was one of the best things I ever did in my hockey career because it, it, I, I found the love for the game again. I, I got to work with Dave King again, who was a great mentor for me um, in my whole career. Even still up till this day, I call Dave at times when uh, when I just want to chat about hockey. And, you know, leaving the NHL gave me more of an appreciation for it when I went back. And so I think that I was lucky I had the opportunity to do that. Um, it wasn't under the best circumstances. I left New Jersey uh, asking to be traded and, and uh, was lucky to have the option to go and play in the Olympics because I'm not sure what I would have done if I didn't. But when I really look back at it, I needed that reset in my career. And um, and I came back to the league a much different player, more mature, and, and much more appreciative of the opportunity to have a long NHL career. Well, Sean, as you say, you got that reset. Subsequently being traded ahead of the 92-93 season to the Hartford Whalers, you played there for six seasons, including after they had relocated to Raleigh as the Carolina Hurricanes. You had great success with the organization, actually being voted team MVP for five of those seasons. Then came stops with Philadelphia, Vancouver, and Florida before a major career resurgence playing five seasons for the Phoenix Coyotes, where you were not only a Vesna Trophy finalist, but the third finalist for the MVP Hart Trophy in the 2001-2002 season. Sean, you loved playing in Arizona. I did. I, I found, and I think for a couple of reasons, I think at that point in my career, I was again looking to sort of reset. You know, I'd had a, a number of good seasons in Hartford, had established myself as a as a as a starting goaltender in the NHL but there was another level I think my game could still go to I was at that stage now where I was right around 30 years of age when a a goaltender I believe should should be at that point that he can be the best uh you know in his in his uh in his career if he 
is in good shape at that point, still, you know, taking good care of himself. And I was ready to be uh, a much better player at that point. I want, I knew I had it in me. I just wanted to take it to another level. I got lucky. I got traded to a place where Benoit Laird was the goalie coach. Um, I thought him and I worked extremely well together. I, I got him at a good point. He got me at a good point, And we had a, a, a good thing going there for about five seasons. And it, it really was the best um, time and best hockey that I played in my career. When you had great success there, you subsequently finished your career returning to Philly a second time, plus a stop in Tampa Bay before retiring in 2007 after a final season where you split time between the Los Angeles Kings and the Springfield Falcons of the AHL. Sean, you finished your career 15th all-time for games played, 30th for all-time wins, 50th for all-time shutouts, and as I noted, 5th all-time for um, penalty minutes by a goalie. I am not your mother, but do you want to explain all the penalty minutes? Well, that was the neighborhood I grew up in. I had no chance growing up at Dufferin Blue or not not getting in a few scraps, so I think that just carried off into my hockey. But I really think that at the end of the day, uh, for me, I looked at the goalie position as different than maybe some other guys and maybe people who watch hockey. I felt it was the ultimate leadership position. And so when I played, when I stepped on the ice, of course, I wanted to stop the puck. That's your job. And that was the first uh, first thing on my mind. But I also felt you needed to play with a certain amount of intensity. And um, and as we all know, hockey's an intense game and things happen and there's contact and all those other things. So I, I never felt like I was just a guy out there that was needed to be protected by my teammates. If if something happened, I, I felt if I needed to get involved, I, I never had a problem with that. But by no means did I like fighting. By no means did I go looking for it. I just felt like I wasn't going to back down if it presented itself. And uh, in, in our game, it does present itself at times. Well, you heard from Sean, kids. Don't uh, don't proactively do it. But you got to be able to protect yourself. Sean, did you know it was time to hang up the pads in this case? Oh, yeah, I knew. I, I probably knew before I hung them up that, uh, that it was probably time a year or two before that, but not because I couldn't play uh, and I didn't think physically I was still able to do it. I just think mentally... You get to a point with the game where the preparation in in order to go out there and be a, a good player uh, takes a lot of work. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do the work. It just mentally, it's it's really hard when your body starts telling you that you can't do the same things you used to be able to do, and you're not as sure what you can expect from yourself out there. There's nothing worse than stepping onto the ice in an NHL game and not really knowing what you're going to get out of your body or what you can expect from yourself. And that that's the point where I realized, you know, this is just done. I can I can keep going out there and I can get away with it sometimes. But I always felt I wanted to be an impact player. I wanted to be a guy that could step on the ice and have have an impact in the game and when that stopped happening, I knew it was time. That was it was time to hang him up. Let's move forward to your most recent success as part of the Vegas Golden Knights Stanley Cup victory. In your role as director of goaltending, you are an unsung hero in helping them win their first Stanley Cup, if I may pay you some props. First of all, Sean, you had to survive through what sounds like an impossible task of managing five starting goaltenders last season. Logan Thompson, Aiden Hill, Laurent Brossois, Jiri Patera, and Jonathan Quick. Winning the Pacific Division and having the absolute best record in the Western Conference while using five different goalies is an achievement. Secondly, you are 
obviously responsible for getting the Golden Knights goaltenders ready for action, but listeners may not realize you were also responsible for scouting the opposition's goaltenders. So you had to present your players and coaches with all the keys to beating the other goalie. And in fact, head coach Bruce Cassidy gave you direct credit for guiding Shea Theodore to his huge tie-breaking goal in Game 1 of the Finals. Tell us a little about the life of you as goaltending coach, director of goaltending, during this impressive Stanley Cup run that the Vegas Golden Knights had. Well, it was really enjoyable to win. I, I think that anybody who spends a long time in the game always, you know, dreams um, of, of winning a Stanley Cup. And you, you don't realize how hard it is until you've been in the game a long time. And you, and you see that year after year, one team wins. And, you know, being in that position, I was with Montreal two years ago in the finals. And to not win, you start thinking, am I ever going to get this close again? And so, first of all, it was really, really enjoyable to be part of the winning team. Very satisfying. And I think that my role was a role that I've done before. So, comfortable in that role, although uh, there's other jobs I've had in the league, including being a general manager and uh, with the Olympic team and things like that, that I enjoy as well. But I just felt that this was the role that I needed to fulfill with this team to help to help them win. And so it, it, it's gratifying. And it wasn't it wasn't easy all the time. Um, we actually had seven goalies, to be honest. We had Michael Hutchison, too, who was going to play a game for us, and we traded him that day. So he would have been the sixth goalie to play a game for us. And uh, Robin Leonard was supposed to be our starter to start the season. And he, he had surging and, and ended up not playing. But it wasn't the volume or the amount of goaltenders. It was it was just making sure that anybody that was going to play was prepared to play. That's the first job of the goalie coach is getting your guys in a mind space where when they step out on the ice, they can be the best player they can be. And that's that's something that I enjoy about that role. And ultimately, the scouting of the other team, That I've done a lot of scouting. I've, I've done scouting as, as a job in the league. So the you know, you know the players, you've seen them play a lot. Uh, there's things that you can pick up for other guys that, that'll help. But at the end of the day, the main job for me is is really making sure that our goaltenders step on the ice confident and can be the best player they can be. And and we got a lot we got a lot of mileage out of our goalies this year. Well, I have to ask you, being obviously a former player yourself, when you're in the finals and the teams out there is your first feeling. I wish I could be out there play, or are you like I'm glad I'm over here. It's so high high pressure and uh, so feeling those emotions at the time. Yeah, I, I don't miss playing. I, I don't think I ever really have since I stopped playing, and um, I think that's probably the reason I've been able to stay and work and started working in the game right after retiring because I didn't really ever think that my career. Of course, I would have liked to win as a player. And I would have liked to, and, and maybe every player feels that way, that there's more you could have done or more success you could have had as a player. I don't know if anybody, Wayne Gretzky, I'm not sure if he feels he could have won more Stanley Cups, scored more goals, but I think that's the nature of most players. But I never miss playing, and uh, so getting to the finals for me, I think the emotion was probably every bit as high and, and, uh, and, and as exciting as it would have been as a player. Because at that point, you have a different role, but your role is a contribution that you need to do well if the team's going to win and you have a part of the success. So I, I enjoyed every minute of it, and the experience for me personally was, uh, I, I don't know if it could have been much better, to be honest. 
Well, that sounds great. And, you know, we love to go behind the scenes. Do you mind sharing any stories or thoughts from the minute the buzzer went to say you guys were now the champions? Yeah, I, you know, I was up top. I'm not on the bench. And I sit up in the press box with uh, another coach, Misha Donskov, who's been with the team from day one. And we had a deal before the final game that if, if we were winning or it looked like we were going to win fairly early into the third period, that we, we'd make our way down to the bench so that we would be there for all the celebration. And uh, and the game was, was really out of hand. So that was a nice thing that there wasn't really in doubt when the third period started. But as we were walking down and getting on the elevator, come down to the the, uh, the dressing room and the, and the bench area, we both started looking at each other and, and realizing, you know, we're we're going to win the Stanley Cup. Like that was the first realization that you could say, you know, confidently that we're, we're going to win. And and that was really a a flood of emotions because up till that point, as we all know in any sport, but hockey especially, so many things can happen. So you never. You never count on the winning until the buzzer goes. And to just be able to say that was uh, was pretty cool uh, after all the years and, and finally realizing that, you know what, this this is going to happen. We've actually, we're actually going to win this thing. That's amazing. And as you say, you haven't had your cup period yet, but will you be getting the cup for a day? And do you have a plan with what you want to do? Yeah, we're going to have it on September 7th. Uh, we're going to have it in Scottsdale. And, uh, and you know, that was a, a real decision for me because of Toronto. And that's where all my minor hockey, as I said, was played. And my sisters are there, my brother. But without my parents being around, it's changed over the years. We, we have five kids and they're all out west. And so my wife is going to organize a nice party where all our friends and family will come and we'll get a, we'll get a nice day with it. We're not going to do anything crazy. Uh, I, I want to, you know, pay tribute as well to a lot of the people that have helped me along the way. So we'll have those type of people there that have had an impact on my hockey career and, uh, and just really take the time to reflect on it, enjoy it, and make sure that everybody leaves getting their pictures with it, drinking out of it, whatever they want to do with it, make sure we don't hand it back too damaged. It sounds like a good plan. Well, you got a great plan, September 7th. You're going to have a great day with it. Sean, I'm not being a smartass when I ask this, a goalie coach, the NHL goalie, already knows how to do the perfect poke check. He knows all the angles. Why would an NHL goalie need a goalie coach? Well, a lot of reasons, but I think, first of all, um, the nature of that position is so unique that within within a team game, you really are an individual player. Your job is different than anybody else's. Your Your role is different than everybody else's, and yet, you know, it's probably the most important position in in hockey, and it's very similar to the quarterback in football or the starting pitcher. It's a very it's a very demanding, unique position. So, coaching, it, you know, coaching is usually done in general for the rest of the team. You know, a head coach has a game plan for your team, but that doesn't really fall into what the goalie needs to do most times. So, it's 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 really having somebody that's there to lean on, also work with you, but but more than anything, give you the attention specifically uh, specifically that you need that most other people, if they haven't played the position, really don't understand. And so that's how I always looked at it. You're a coach, but you're also more of a mentor. You're also a, a psychologist. There's all kinds of other things you need to be in that position. But without it, a lot of goalies, I believe, would just would they be lost in the shuffle. Yeah, well, I can see how valuable it is to have someone like yourself, obviously 18 years playing in the league, to uh, tutor these guys. 
If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Sean Burke, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got Curtis McElhenney, Alan Bester, Ken Reggett, Chris Versteeg, Bernie Nichols, and Unders Hedberg. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Sean, growing up in Toronto, can I assume your guy was Mike Palmatier? Definitely Mike Palmatier was one of my guys, for sure. I I look at those old Toronto Maple Leaf teams and names like Yuri Sear, huh, and goalies that people wouldn't even remember pop into my head. So I, I you know, obviously subconsciously loved uh, all the goaltenders that came through the Toronto Maple Leafs. But as a kid, I'm not embarrassed, but maybe a little bit ashamed to say I was a Philadelphia Flyers fan oh. up to Toronto. And, um, and that was for a reason other than a goalie. Bobby Clark was my idol as a kid. And so that was my team. And of course, Bernie Perrant played there at the time, but I liked Ken Dryden. I can remember Rogie Vashon posters on my wall. I, I was a real fan of the game as much as I was a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and, and of course, Philadelphia. Well, I wanted to ask you about the changing goalies. Mike Palmatier, I literally just uh, met him. Honestly, I could have swallowed him up. He he played at 5'9", 170 pounds. You, Sean, of course, played at six foot four, two 215 pounds. Could the popcorn kid Mike Palmatier even play in today's NHL? Probably not. And that's that's not disrespectful because he wouldn't get the chance to play more than anything. He wouldn't probably have been scouted. He wouldn't have been drafted. And at the end of it all, he, he probably would have never got the chance to get in the net under normal circumstances. So that that's really where the game has changed. There's still lots of smaller guys out there that I believe with the right opportunity, the UC Soros-type uh, goaltenders who are uh, really, really effective. But when you're drafting, when you're developing a player, if you can have a guy that's 6'4", who can do the same thing as a guy who's 5'10", you're just naturally in, in our day and age going to go with the bigger athlete. And I, I think that probably leaves a few smaller guys falling through the cracks, but I can also see the mentality of that. I mean, at the end of it all, the more net you fill, if you're able to move, if you have that ability, uh, it's it's every sport. The bigger athlete nowadays is the guy that's just more desirable. Well, it's an amazing change in, in players' physical structure over that time. And I should note that another Leafs great and another past guest and friend of this podcast, Alan Bester, played even smaller than Mike Palmatier. By Mike Gallister was a roommate of mine. I mean, we played in the World Championships, uh, uh, sorry, ships together back in, I think it was 19, either 89 or 91. Him and I were goalie partners for Team Canada. And I remember wrestling him as a roommate. Yeah, he was pretty small. You could have your wee with him. <laughs> now, by my count, Sean, you played for nine NHL teams. Did you keep your jerseys or any of the memorabilia? That is one thing I have kept, except I don't have a new Jersey Devil jersey, uh, which is a bit of a shame because that was my first team. But back in that day, it is so long ago now, I don't know that we got to keep our jerseys. I don't think Lee Lamorella was giving away anything in those days too easily, so we didn't get our jerseys. But um, my masks I've kept, again, my new Jersey Devil mask I don't have, and I have just about everyone. But that's really... You know, I have I have an eight year old uh, that I think you know obviously will never have seen dad play, won't really know much about dad's career. So that kind of stuff may may actually pop out at some point down the road. But for now, I've just kept it, um, but really don't have a lot of stuff on display to be honest. 
Well, I want to give a shout out to past guest and friend of the podcast, David Arago, who paints super incredible goalie masks. Were you around long enough to get the era when goalies were getting their masks painted with these super elaborate designs? Oh, yeah. I always, I mean, Gray Harrison was, you know, the guy that made my first mask. And, uh, you know, he was the guy in the day when I broke in that really everybody was getting their mask from. The paint jobs were not as elaborate. And then as my career moved along, I, I started to, you know, make my masks more personal to my, uh, you know, personality and the things I like. So I always had musicians on my mask and different things like that. And, you know, they were they were cool. They always did a good job with them. Uh, and now, of course, you know, it, it's it's identifiable. I mean, guys' masks, you know, you could recognize them in their mask before you could recognize them on the street without it. And, uh, and it's become a real character trait for goaltenders. I noticed from your playing career and even today although you're in michigan today as you know your cup day will be in scottsdale you played in florida arizona tampa los angeles you also had a few games with the ihl san diego goals you are an expert in playing professional hockey in non-traditional warm weather markets how great is it to leave practice in flip-flops and and be on the beach in a few minutes well, it really is uh, an incredible change in our game. I mean, especially from the time I broke in, I would have never, ever assumed that I would play any of those places when I was drafted by the New Jersey Devils. At the time, Los Angeles was was in the league, and um, you know, we've we've seen not only an influx of Southern markets, but we've seen a lot of them win the Stanley Cup. It just shows you, uh, and and it's it's just been proven that you can you can win in any market uh, with the right team, the right management, and ownership, and uh, it's been great for the league. It's the the league has grown in popularity. Hockey's played everywhere now in the United States. Some of the southern markets have developed some of the best players. Obviously, Austin Matthews coming out of Arizona. So uh, the the game is 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 global, and uh, and especially uh, in North America, there's very few places now that you can live that d- don't have decent hockey programs. And as you know, being a goalie behind your mask, it was tough to see what you look like. And being in these southern United States, they weren't as familiar with hockey. When you're outside the arena, would people recognize you? And did you kind of like being under the radar versus if you were walking around in Toronto? Yeah, it never really was something I thought much about. You know, it, in the markets I played, um, you know, especially in Arizona, people were very respectful. If they did recognize you, um, it, it was always just to come up and say hi and maybe introduce you to their kids or something. It, it never, I never played in a market where I had the microscope like guys in Toronto or Montreal. I saw that working for Montreal, and I just saw the way the guys were constantly under a microscope and the media and, and fans and everybody was paying so much attention to them that I saw it affect guys and, and, and not in a good way sometimes. It's, it's the pressure of that and the ability to live uh, up to that all the time is not easy, but it also is part of the job and it goes with playing in those kind of markets. Whereas I, I really enjoyed where I played for the most part because at the end of the day when it was over and practice was done, I I would leave the rink and go home and uh, you, you had usually sunshine and the roof down and not, it's not a bad way to play hockey. It's not a bad way to play hockey and to live. Now, Sean, you had exposure to a lot of different coaches and thus a lot of different coaching styles. Who are your favorite coaches and why? Dave King, for sure, to me. I mentioned him earlier. And and his his style was... Dave, Dave was ahead of his time. I mean, when I played for him on the national team back in the 80s, 
we were playing against the best Russian teams in those days. Those guys had not come to the NHL yet, the Fedosovs and, you know, Makarov and those guys. And so we were always outmatched talent-wise, but Dave, we, we were in the best shape. We always had a team that was prepared to play. And I just learned from an early age playing for Dave how hard you could push yourself. Uh, you need You need at some point as a young player to get over the hump and realize that you can work harder, that you can push yourself further. And Dave was the first coach that ever made me realize that and helped me through that. So I, I give him a lot of credit. It's funny when people ask me about coaches, I think Dave Coach was one of my best goalie coaches I ever had. He understood the goaltending position when I was younger and, and things that he would talk to me about, about goaltending were very astute for a guy that wasn't a goalie coach. And so Dave was definitely, Jim Schoenfeld, I enjoyed playing for Jim Schoenfeld when I broke into the league. He was totally different. He was just, he was more of a player's coach. He, he put the responsibility on you to go out and uh, and, and he, he trusted you as a player and you felt that. So those are two, I mean, I played for Mike Keenan. I played for John Tortorella. I played for Ken Hitchcock. I played for lots and lots of coaches and uh I, I know some of them would uh, would like to forget that I played for them, but for the most part, the, the one thing I tried to do as a player was was always go out and, uh, and and give a good effort and play hard. And it didn't always work. I didn't always play well for those guys, but um, you know my attitude was pretty simple: uh, just let me play, and I'll be a good player. But sometimes uh, they didn't see it that way. Well, you certainly saw a lot of different guys. Did you ever play for Mike Babcock, who is now uh, coming back with Columbus? I didn't play for Mike, but I, I know Mike from different Hockey Canada experiences and and him being around different uh, times at the World Championships and things like that. But uh, no, I didn't. I didn't play for uh, uh, for Mike, and you know, I but I but I I think as a player, and especially now that I'm out of the game as a player and working in it, coaching and management, those kind of things. I look back and realize the impression that just about every coach leaves something with you. And you may not know it at the time. You may not like the guy for whatever reasons at that particular time. Um, but I will say that every coach I ever played for, there's something about the the way they coach that I've taken and used in my experiences since. So I uh, maybe more of an appreciation now for all those guys than I ever had for a lot of them when I was playing for them. Yeah, well, you certainly take the best, and and whatever you didn't like, you can leave that behind. You are, of course, Berkey, and of course, there is another Berkey, Brian Burke, getting stopped on the street and being asked if you're related to the other Berkey. This happens daily or weekly. It never happens. My brother's name is Brian Burke, too, so whenever I would leave tickets for him, people want to know if I was leaving tickets for the Brian Burke, and I'd say, no, it's just my brother, the the other Brian Burke. But, you know, Brian Burke trained for me in Hartford. That's how I ended up getting out of New Jersey. After the Olympics in 92, there was still a few months left in the season, and uh, and Lou decided he wasn't going to trade me then. So I went and played in San Diego for a while, and that summer is when Brian Burke went to Hartford as the general manager, and he made the trade for me, and that's that's how I ended up in Hartford. This being the Trial Legends podcast, I would be remiss if I did not ask for your thoughts on the Maple Leafs' new general manager, Brad Treliving. You have worked closely with Brad in the past. What can we expect from him? So far, his biggest moves have been adding muscle and flying out to Arizona to personally meet and get on the same page with uh, AM34. Well, it's funny with Brad. He He's an incredibly hard worker. 
I worked with him for seven, maybe eight seasons, and uh, very closely, uh, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, he, what you can expect is a guy that's going to, he's going to leave it all on the table. He's hes going to show up every day and do what he thinks he needs to do to make the team better. You know, he's not going to leave too many stones unturned. He'll, he loves, like you say, he loves a team that plays aggressive. He likes a team that's, you know, not going to be intimidated out there. He's got a little of that Western League in him, you know, a little bit of that Western League toughness in him. So uh, I don't expect the Toronto Maple Leafs to get pushed around. So yeah, there's a lot of good qualities uh, that Brad has. He's he's a um, he's a hockey man. I mean, he loves he eats, sleeps the game in Toronto with all that media and and the other things that go with it. I think he's he's a guy that can handle that. I like what I'm hearing, Sean. You being a Toronto boy, you know, I don't have to tell you. Fifty six years, it's got to break soon. You, of course, are very highly regarded in the NHL because of your extensive playing career and in the past have interviewed for GM jobs with a variety of teams. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do want to ask you, do you still yearn to be an NHL GM or have you kind of found your sweet spot as the director of goaltending in Vegas? I don't yearn to be a general manager. I, I feel that if the right opportunity came along, that yes, I, I'd still welcome the opportunity to, to lead my own team. I think that that's... Uh, Something I've enjoyed doing in the past, uh, albeit it hasn't been as an NHL general manager, but running different teams for Team Canada, putting staffs together, putting the team together, something I've enjoyed as well. And uh, and I and I think now with my perspective on the game and all the jobs I've done and and the experience I have, I yeah I, I think that I would like to see at some point if I could put that into uh, into practice and try to win a Stanley Cup, leading a team in that in that role, but. I also understand it's an incredibly competitive league at every level, not only as a player, coaching, management. There's there's lots of people out there who want those jobs. And um, and I think that uh, I've had some great opportunities to do things that most other people don't get the opportunity to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and appreciative of the opportunities I have had. But if the right general manager opportunity happened to come along, yes, I, I'd welcome that. Big question. When was the last time you strapped on the pads? Do you still get out on the ice for fun? I strapped them on this past season. If you can imagine going through five goaltenders, uh, there were days when uh, we had some injury problems in practice and things. And uh, so, yeah, I did. I did strap them on and realized that I will never ever strap them on again. It was not. Uh, it was not fun for me, and it definitely wasn't fun for anybody else to watch. So, uh, I am now officially retired. <laughs> Is it an unwritten rule that you don't shoot above the shoulders? You don't shoot at the coach's head? There was very little respect out there for me with the goalie gear on. I was I was back again to being just that guy that, you know what, he's in the net. That's his own problem. He can, he can deal with what comes his way. He put the pads on. That's his fault. I can't wait to talk to you about this one. Ballad of the Whiskey Robber. A true story of bank heists, ice hockey, Transylvanian pelt smuggling, moonlighting detectives, and broken hearts. You own the rights to this story. You are currently looking at turning it into a series or a movie. And as I noted, Johnny Depp apparently owned the rights at one time and wanted to play the lead role. What is the Ballad of the Whiskey Robber, and how did you get involved in acquiring the rights? Well, it is, yeah, it's a fascinating story. I was handed the book, coincidentally, by George McPhee back in 2015 at the uh, World Championships in Europe. And uh, he just said, I think you'd love this book. So I read it. It's a true story. 
I was fascinated because of the period it took place too in the late eighties. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the world, uh, at that time, the political landscape, things that I had witnessed over in Eastern Europe at that time myself. So the, the story itself just fascinated me. And, uh, and it, it, it's true. It was a young goaltender. You know, he ended up playing in, in Hungary, robbing banks at night, became a Robin Hood type character. So what I did was I kept an eye on the story and found out that at the time Johnny Depp's production company had owned it. And then it sort of got shelved. You know, time went by, nothing got done with it. So I flew over to Budapest and spent a week living at Attila's place, um, the, the lead character. And I and I went over there with the intention of trying to secure the rights to the story, but I only wanted to do it once we met each other and, and that he was comfortable with it. So it worked out really well. I, I, I do have now the life rights to that story. We've had a lot of interest from different people in Hollywood, different producers and that sort of thing. It's now just at the point where we're looking to find the right group to move it forward. And um, and so there's a lot, been a lot of meetings, a lot of calls with different people. And the book itself is fascinating. Uh, but the real story with all the details that aren't in the book are even more incredible. I mean, he spent seven and a half years in solitary confinement. He's now uh, living outside of Budapest with a young family. He makes pottery uh, for a living is what he does. And it's, he's just an incredible character. I could see why Johnny Depp wanted to play him at one time. He really has that charisma and that, and that type of personality. So we'll see if it ever gets off the ground, but, um, it's something I would watch. I, I would love to see this as a series and it's, it's definitely something I would sit down and watch because I think it's just an incredible story. Well, it does sound fascinating. Well, good luck with that project. That'd be amazing if you can, uh, exercise that part of your creative uh, spirit. Sean, where can we follow you on social media? Is that something you participate in? Very little. I do have a Twitter account. I learned a long time ago, you really, really got to be careful what you tweet out this day and age. And, uh, you know, I was never controversial or political or anything, anything like that. But uh, as you can appreciate, and I think most people can, it doesn't matter what you say in this day and age, somebody else will have the opposite opinion. And, uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not that guy that wants to get involved with going back and forth. I do have uh, Instagram and my Instagram is all based around my family, pictures of uh, my kids, different events we've been to stuff. So I, I enjoy that sharing that with mostly my friends and other people. That's really my social media. Well, I want to wish you all the best as you enjoy your break in Michigan. September 7th, your day with the Cup is going to be amazing. And I want to thank you for your time. It was great meeting you and hearing all the stories of your career and wishing you uh, all the success going forward. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, and thank you. Uh, just bringing back some memories of Toronto. It's not a place I go back to very often anymore, and, and yet uh, it's still home to me. It's where I grew up, played all my minor hockey. And uh, anytime I can try to talk about Toronto, I, I enjoy it. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you. You're welcome. And to the listeners, on behalf of Sean Burke, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Trial Legends Podcast. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson. 
an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.